This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Suresh Subramani, a professor in the section of molecular biology and the director of the Tata Institute for Genetics and Society at UC San Diego. Thank you to all of the viewers for tuning in to this program on the biology and evolution of COVID-19. So we're gathered here today to discuss the coronavirus pandemic that has engulfed the uh, entire globe in just three months since it was first uh, brought to the attention of the World Health Organization on New Year's Eve of 2019. Uh, there are three primary reasons why uh, the world is so concerned about this new virus to which no one to our knowledge has natural immunity. So the first is the rapid spread of the virus. In just three months, it has spread to over 200 countries. The second is that it causes significant morbidity and mortality that threatens to overwhelm the global healthcare systems. So since the first report of this virus in Wuhan, China, as of March 30th, there were over 750,000 cases and 36,000 deaths worldwide, which is a mortality of about 4.5%, which is higher than that for flu virus. And even as we air this particular program, the USA leads the world as the hotspot for COVID-19. The third reason is a huge reservoir of, of carriers of, of this particular disease. It is estimated that there may be tenfold more asymptomatic carriers without symptoms of the disease, which means then that there could be over seven and a half million carriers worldwide. So in summary then, this is a disease that is spreading very rapidly across the globe with the number of cases doubling every three, three to four days. And it has sown fear and unpredictability across the globe, requiring the implementation of social distancing and lockdown policies, stressing our medical capabilities to the extreme and causing severe economic fallout that is still unfolding. How long all of this will last is completely unknown, is anybody's guess. So we've gathered here today a panel of biologists who work and teach broadly about infectious diseases, how they arise, evolve and spread to infect human beings around the globe by evading our otherwise robust immune systems. So these uh, faculty are here to share their knowledge regarding the biology of the virus, why this pandemic has brought the world to its knees, and they will also discuss the implications of infectious diseases broadly in our lives. They're here uh, uh, specifically to talk about the biology of the viruses, but not to provide medical advice or uh, uh, policy matters uh, relating to this particular virus. So let me introduce our panel of three speakers, which consists of three faculty from the Division of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. They are Drs. Emily Trommel, Matt Doherty, and Justin Meyer. I will introduce them one at a time, following which they will each give a short presentation. And then at the end of the presentations, we will have a roundtable discussion on topics of interest. So let's begin with our first panelist. Uh, Dr. Emily Trommel is a professor in the section of cell and development, developmental biology. Uh, her lab studies host pathogen interactions, and in particular, she focuses on intracellular pathogens that are completely dependent on the host for their replication. These include fungal parasites called microsporidia, as well as viruses that have genomes that consist of ribonucleic acid 
as opposed to the deoxyribonucleic acid that most organisms have. And coronaviruses, by the way, have uh, these uh, ribonucleic acid or RNA genomes. So she is going to address the topics uh, as follows, the basic biology of coronaviruses, how we test whether someone is infected with this virus that is called SARS-CoV-2, and how scientists predict and model the spread of this particular virus in the population. So Emily, I'm going to turn it over to you to, to give us your presentation first. All right, thanks Suresh for that introduction. And thanks for the opportunity to share with you some of the basic biology of coronavirus and how that relates to COVID-19 disease. So I'm gonna tell you about three different aspects of COVID-19. The first of which is just um, defining how the COVID-19 disease relates to this virus called SARS-CoV-2. Next, I'm gonna tell you about how we test for the presence of the SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then I'm gonna share with you what we've learned about um, the SARS-CoV-2 genome. Suresh mentioned it's an RNA genome and how we're able to look at changes in the sequence in this genome. And that's enabling us to track spread of this virus around the globe. And it's really part of an amazing open science effort with sort of an unprecedented level of information acquisition and information sharing among researchers. So first off, I just wanna clarify how COVID-19 relates to SARS-CoV-2. So COVID-19 is the disease that's part of this pandemic, and it's caused by a virus that's recently been named SARS-CoV-2. And there's a connection here you can think of in terms of the disease of AIDS being caused by the virus HIV. Similarly, back in 2002 and 2003, there's this severe acute respiratory syndrome called SARS, the disease, that was caused by a, a virus that's called SARS-CoV, now called CoV-1. And since the virus of this current pandemic is related and sequenced, it's been named SARS-CoV-2. And so SARS-CoV-1 and 2 are part of this group of viruses called coronaviruses, which are named because of the appearance of the viral particle, as you can see in an electron micrograph here, where these red blobs are the spike proteins on the outside of the viral particle that form kind of a halo or a corona, a crown. And so that's the source of the name coronavirus, and it's abbreviated CoV. So as many of you know, viruses are completely dependent on their hosts for replication. So unlike many disease-causing agents, like most bacterial pathogens and fungal pathogens that are able to replicate on their own, viruses absolutely need a host present. And it's for this reason that the social distancing measures that we've been hearing about and have been implementing can be so effective because while the virus can survive in the case of SARS-CoV-2, maybe two to three days outside of a host, it cannot make more of itself without getting inside of a host cell. So that process of getting inside of a host cell and making more of itself is diagrammed here with this um, rectangle representing a host cell, for example, a cell in a human lung, where outside of the cell, a virus such as this green um, uh, hexagon here, if it is able to find the proper receptor on the surface of the cell, can bind to that receptor and be taken up into the cell. The virus will then release its genome to enable gene expression to happen, um, replication of its genome, and late expression to enable the formation of new viral particles. And here we've got one virus coming in, 
and then three new viruses being made that are released to go and infect new hosts. And in fact, you can have a much larger replication number than this. For example, some viruses can um, have tens to thousands of new viral particles made um, from a cell. And also, as Suresh mentioned, the, the genome for the coronavirus, it's actually different from the genome of most life. So most life, like bacteria and humans, the blueprints to make more of ourselves, the genome, is a, a molecule called DNA. And some viruses do use DNA. So this generalized life cycle here is showing sort of a DNA made, being made into RNA, which is made into protein. But many viruses use RNA for their genome. And in particular, coronaviruses are single-stranded RNA viruses that are um, positive sense, which means that they can rapidly hijack the host protein synthesis machinery to start making proteins, and in this way, really rapidly hijack and take over a host cell. So knowing that the coronavirus has RNA in its genome helps us understand how we test for the presence of the coronavirus. So you may have heard about the need for more testing. We've had an extreme shortage of tests and there were some problems with the um, original tests that were available. And it's really critical that we get more of these tests. And I just want to explain how these tests work. The most common of which is, is an RT-PCR test, which stands for reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction, also sometimes called a real-time test. So the way this test works is that a sample from a patient is isolated, the RNA is extracted, and then it's reverse transcribed into DNA. This DNA is then amplified with this polymerase chain reaction to enable detection of one segment of the viral RNA genome. So this RNA detection then enables us to determine who is currently infected with the virus. This kind of RT-PCR test, however, will miss infections that have already been cleared. And so a related test will be able to detect those infections that occurred in the past. And this kind of test is a serology test that measures antibodies that were generated against the presence of that virus. And the antibodies that are generated against the virus can be um, detected if somebody is currently infected and is mounting an immune response or somebody who is infected in the past and has cleared the virus, but still has those antibodies because they can last for years and even decades. And so with a combination of these two tests, where the RT-PCR test is able to detect the presence of viral RNA in current infections, together with the serology test that measures the immune response, we can determine who has the infection but hasn't yet mounted in, for some reason um, an antibody response, maybe because the infection is still so early people who have both the infection and have mounted an immune response, and people who no longer have the infection, but um, had it in the past and, and mounted an immune response, and potentially those antibodies cleared the infection. So this RT-PCR test is detecting RNA from just one gene in the viral genome. But the virus has a number of different genes that are made into proteins that are part of its entire genome, and that's represented here with this line with the different colors representing different genes made into different proteins. And because the technology has gotten so much better for really rapidly acquiring and cheaply acquiring sequence information, we're able to sequence the entire genome of this virus from many, many different samples. 
And it's really been an uh, amazing kind of unprecedented uh, rate in which we're acquiring this information, sharing this information, and analyzing this information. And a lot of this information, so it's, it's basically getting samples from patients around the globe that are sending information to a website called GSAVE that's run by the German government, originally um, organized to acquire influenza information, now uh, being adapted for coronavirus. That information is rapidly ported to a website called nextstrain.org that has these really wonderful visualization tools so we can look at how the sequence of the genome is changing. Um, and this, as I mentioned, is just increasingly, um, uh, there's more and more genome information every time you look at this website. So this morning, there was over 2,000 genomes from 2,000 different infected patients that were analyzed and compared. And the way they're compared is in sort of the family tree shown here with on the um, x-axis here is time. And the colors are representing where the virus was isolated from. For example, purple represents virus isolated from China. Red represents virus isolated from the Americas. And then the branch links of these trees are telling us how closely related these different viruses are. So you can see that viruses from China are very closely related to some viruses that were isolated from people in the Americas. From this information, we can learn that somebody in China transmitted the virus to somebody in the Americas. And not only are we now able to track how this virus has spread by this kind of fingerprint of the mutations and the changes in the viral genome, but we also, because of what we know from the biology of this virus, can learn about how the, the biology of the virus is changing, how it may be altering the way it interacts with host cells, and also potentially different ways that we could treat it. And it's, I think, a real uh, success story in terms of the power of open science and the power of sharing information among researchers so that we can better able to understand how this virus is spread around the globe, how its biology is changing, and also hopefully how we can treat it. So with that information, I think this should provide some foundation for Matt to next talk about uh, evolution of this virus and Justin more about spread. And I'll thank you very much for your attention and hand it back to Suresh. So thank you so much, Emily. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Matt Doherty. He's an assistant professor in the section of molecular biology. He studies the evolutionary arms race and adaptations of the host immune systems on the one hand, and the surface proteins of their pathogens on the other. He will discuss how viruses evolve to become human pathogens, how they jump from their natural animal host to humans, and why human immune systems cannot cope with a new strain of virus that has never been seen before by the immune system. Thank you, Suresh, for the introduction, and thanks to Emily for the great introduction to coronaviruses. So what I wanna talk about in the next few minutes is how this virus, SARS-CoV-2, which is causing the COVID-19 pandemic, fits into the context of other viruses that are circulating within the human population or have caused previous epidemics. Because we as a species are always being exposed to viruses, as is illustrated very nicely in this image of Alice from Lewis Carroll's famous books, chased by all sorts of viruses and pathogens. So using this perspective, I'd like to address three questions about SARS-CoV-2. First, how do viruses such as SARS-CoV-2 enter the human population and become pandemics? 
Second, how does this virus actually relate to currently circulating as well as past and present epidemic human viruses? And third, based on all this information, what does this tell us about what we could expect for our future existence with this virus in terms of potential long-term immunity or coexistence with this virus? So first, it's important to point out that every human pandemic virus that we know of in recent times has originated from another species, which is something we call zoonotic transmission or zoonosis. And I'm showing you here a case where we're saying it's coming from a bat, which we call the reservoir species. For SARS-CoV-2, bats were likely the original reservoir, but of course, many different animals serve as reservoir species for zoonotic viruses, as we'll discuss in a moment. But this zoonotic transmission into a single human is only the first step. There's also a very important second step, which is the virus then needs to be able to have sustained human-to-human -human transmission. So these two steps together really result in a virus that has pandemic potential. Now, if we look at this in the context of coronaviruses, we know there are plenty of circulating human coronaviruses that cause mild symptoms that we often refer to as common colds. And up to about 20 years ago, people didn't really pay too much attention to these viruses because, again, they were just one of many types of viruses that cause a common cold. What we've also learned in the last, say, 20 years is that, in fact, within animal populations, again, especially among bats, there are many, many circulating coronaviruses. And again, we assume that because these are resident in these animal populations, these have pretty low case fatality rates. So where the danger comes is when infected bats or some intermediate host comes into contact with humans and we have what's called a spillover event. These spillovers result in zoonotic viruses in the human population, but fortunately many times these have limited or no real ability to transmit human to human. And within the coronavirus family, we have an example of this where starting in about 2012, we started seeing cases of a virus known as Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus or MERS-CoV. We've seen about 2,500 cases of this virus, and as is common with these types of zoonotic viruses, the case fatality rate is really quite high, which is pretty alarming. But again, human-to-human -human transmission appears to be low. But for other viruses, once that spillover event occurs, either because the virus was initially adapted to do it or rapidly adapted to do it, it's now able to have sustained human-to-human -human transmission. So these are the viruses that have massive pandemic potential, and this is where we are with SARS-CoV-2. In this case, the very first cases appear to have been detected in November or December of 2019, and as of March 30th, we're rapidly approaching 1 million cases globally. What you also see is that the case fatality rate is much lower than you see with MERS, which again is pretty common with viruses that have sustained human-to-human -human transmission, although it's certainly much higher than we're seeing with circulating coronaviruses. And as Emily also mentioned, there's a previous case of this occurring in coronaviruses, where in 2002, there was an outbreak of a virus that was known as SARS-CoV, SARS that fortunately was stopped before it spread globally, but was also quite deadly. So we already knew that there was pandemic potential in this family of viruses, but of course, SARS-CoV-2 has really emerged on a much larger scale. So if we want to understand how this happens, we really need to understand the evolution of viruses and hosts at a molecular level is what leads to the emergence of pandemics. So it's important to not just think about the species, but actually the viruses within those species. And as Emily has already nicely introduced, viruses mutate. And so we know that the virus that's circulating in humans is only about 5% different compared to known circulating bat viruses. And if we wanna know how these differences change the virus, we need to think back to what Emily introduced about the viral life cycle. 
All these points of contact shown here in the schematic Emily used between the virus and the host along the life cycle can be barriers that the virus needs to jump to get into the new population. The one I'm going to focus on now is the step by which the virus enters the cell, which is binding to the cellular receptor, which is mediated by an interaction between this viral protein that's called spike and the host cell protein called ACE2. And we often schematize these interactions as basically a key that needs to fit into a lock. But of course, the real interactions look much more like this, with a three-dimensional structural interaction of the spike protein that then interacts with this ACE receptor. So now if we go back to our bats, we know that the bat virus must have had a spike protein that can interact with bat ACE2, but a circulating bat virus may not necessarily be able to interact with human ACE2, which it would need to be able to do to jump species. And I've drawn ACE2 as looking different because we know that host proteins that interface with viruses tend to themselves evolve very quickly across host species, presumably because of these high stakes host virus conflicts. And again, as Emily introduced, viruses mutate a lot. So we imagine that within the bat population, a variant of this virus arose that could utilize human ACE2. And if that right virus encountered a human virus that could transmit into humans. So the final thing to say about this is to just reiterate that spike and ACE2 are only one piece of this puzzle. And for a virus to be successful, it needs to adapt to many of the genetic differences between humans and the reservoir species. So for instance, we already know that there are many coronaviruses circulating in bats that can already utilize human ACE2, but presumably haven't made the jump into humans because there's some other molecular barrier to replication. So having talked about how coronaviruses such as SARS-CoV-2 can and have entered the human population, I want to return to this question of how SARS-CoV-2 relates to other circulating epidemic human viruses. As I mentioned in my earlier slide, there are coronaviruses that span this whole range of steps in human viral emergence, from animal viruses to zoonotic viruses to circulating human viruses. But of course, we know many human viruses and have had many human pandemics. For instance, of one of the common things we're hearing about now is how these relate to influenza viruses. Partly that's because influenza virus causes respiratory symptoms like coronaviruses, but partly there's also a very clear analogy here in terms of the various influenza viruses in the categories shown here. So at the pandemic level, we've all heard of these major pandemic flus from 1918, the so-called Spanish influenza in 1968, and even as recently as 2009. But of course, the, we know that in addition to these pandemic strains of flu, there are several seasonal flu strains of influenza that we have to deal with every year as well as strains of viruses that transmit from birds and have very high, high case fatality rates, but so far have limited human, human transmission. And as with MERS, one of the big concerns is that if any of these viruses, like H7N9, gain human-to-human -human transmission, we really need to worry about that. And we also know that the real reservoir of this virus is the many, many strains of avian and swine influenza that circulate within animal populations. And at the same time, there are many other pandemic viral strains outside of influenza, many of which come from some animal reservoir at some point. So for instance, smallpox and HIV and Ebola have all caused epidemics in humans. And we know, for instance, that HIV transmitted into the human population several independent times from primate reservoirs only a little over 100 years ago. 
Of course, we also have plenty of circulating human viruses like measles and polio that probably had some zoonotic transmission deep in their ancestry, but wasn't quite as recent as any of these, as well as viruses in this category of zoonotic transmission with high case fatality. Among these is rabies virus, which is essentially 100% fatal if left untreated, but doesn't transmit person to person, and also Nipah virus, which has a very high case fatality rate and is also famous for being the virus people use as the model for the movie Contagion. And finally, and this is where some basic virology surveillance is taking place, we know that there are many, many viruses circulating in reservoir species that are, have an unknown number of evolutionary steps away from being zoonotic transmissible. So one thing I take comfort in about all of these other viruses is that we aren't constantly dealing with influenza pandemics and smallpox and other pandemic viruses. And that's because of the largely effective role of our immune system, as Suresh mentioned, in dealing with these viruses once the immune system has actually been prepared. And so with that, we'll start talking about this last question of what we might expect for SARS-CoV-2 in the long term. We'll start off by saying we don't actually really know much about the long-term immunity to SARS-CoV-2 because all this information is only recently emerging. So for instance, we don't know whether people that have been infected are now resistant to secondary infection, which is the sort of hallmark of long-term protective adaptive immunity. But we can get a hint from some of these other viruses that we talked about. So the good news is, is that we have long-term protective immunity against many viruses that you and you'll see that all of these are vaccine targets. Some of these are pandemic viruses like smallpox, some have limited transmission in humans, and some are circulating human viruses. So we have really good ways of making effective vaccines, and the hope is that this will hold for SARS-CoV-2 as well, although the development of vaccines, of course, takes some time. We also know in the case of something like Ebola, where we don't yet know we have a good vaccine, but we know we can take blood from people that have been infected and then cleared the infection and use antibodies from that infected person to administer to people that are currently infected. And this can actually be quite protective. So with SARS-CoV-2, we expect this might be a limited but effective way to treat current infections. Of course, there's also several viruses where we have limited short-term or unknown levels of protective immunity. Unfortunately, for instance, one thing we don't know because circulating coronaviruses are not incredibly well studied, we don't actually know whether people have long-term immunity to these common cold coronaviruses. Some work actually suggests there can be short-term immunity, maybe for a year or two, but the people can eventually be reinfected with essentially the same strain of coronavirus. So this could have implications for what we could expect from SARS-CoV-2, also, we know that we need a new vaccine every year against influenza virus. This has less to do with how effective the vaccine is and more to do with the fast rate of influenza virus evolution. The upside here is that even with limited immunity or because of viral evolution, we know that pandemic strains of flu with high case fatality rate don't endure, right? They essentially turn into seasonal flus in, in future years. And so I think overall, this is encouraging and the precedent with other viruses suggests that once we can get in front of this virus on the public health level, we might expect effective productive immunity, protective immunity against SARS-CoV-2. And while we don't yet know what the long-term future holds, many of these other viruses can be contained by either effective vaccines or uh, protective human immunity. So I'll just summarize before I turn things back to Suresh and Justin by saying first, the SARS-CoV-2 is just one of many viruses that we know has entered the human population 
and will continue to enter the human population. And for all of these reasons, our best defenses at this point are surveillance, the ability to rapidly mount an effective public health response, and of course, as Emily pointed out, you know, these collaborative scientific efforts like we're seeing now with this pandemic that are really going to push us toward developing effective vaccines and treatments. And finally, I take some comfort in knowing that these types of pandemics do pass and we will get through this. Many people will no doubt become sick, but still the hope is an expectation is that perfective immunity will emerge and we'll see that this disease becomes less severe or goes away altogether. So with that, I will turn it back to Suresh and look to more discussions in a bit. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. Um, our final speaker is Dr. Justin Meyer, who is an assistant professor in the section of ecology, behavior, and evolution. He studies the evolution of viral host recognition systems and the strategies that are used by the two. And he also observes in the laboratory how viruses evolve, and he studies their adaptations at various scales. So you heard from Emily about the mutations of the genome of the viruses, this actually translates to changes in the properties of the viral surface proteins, like the coat protein, that are encountered by and, and targeted by the host immune system. So he's going to discuss the variables that contribute to the infectivity of the pathogens in humans, whether such epidemics and pandemics are more likely with increasing environmental encroachments and climate change, and finally, where else in the world such hotspots are likely to occur? In this case, you saw that it came from China, but he will probably tell you that it can happen anywhere in the world. So, Justin, I'm going to turn this over to you, please. Yeah, thank you, Suresh, and thank you, Emily and Matt, for the great introduction to, to viruses. So for my section, I want to talk about three subjects that um, relate to our ability to predict the next pandemic. The first are the variables that contribute to the spread of pathogens. And when we learn about these variables and we think about how the world is changing, we actually find out that we predict that there's an increased likelihood of pandemics in the future. So while that's kind of grim, we can also use those variables as well as other science to actually predict where in the world we expect the next pandemic. And so if we can predict where it might happen, we might be able to stop it before it does happen. So rather than just giving you a long list of variables that either enhance viral spread or diminish viral spread, I'd like to give you a larger framework uh, to understand how those factors work so that as you encounter different factors in the news or so forth, you can have that framework to put that factor in and understand how it actually works. So I want to go over this concept um, in epidemiology. It's, it's a variable called r naught. R0 is the reproductive potential of a pathogen. And what that variable is, it's a number that epidemiologists calculate, and it's the number of susceptible individuals that one infected individual is like to, likely to spread the disease to. So in this diagram here, that disease is being spread to 2.5 people. So the way that R0 works is that when you have an R0 value that's greater than one, that is a case where a pathogen can spread exponentially through a population. However, if that R0 is less than one, that's the case where the pathogen will over time uh, infect fewer and fewer people until eventually it goes extinct in the population. So what is the R0 of SARS-CoV-2? So it's actually estimated to be 2.5. This means that 
this virus can spread rapidly through populations. And as you see around the globe, it's expanding exponentially in many, many countries. So what exactly goes into calculating R0? R0, the actual math to calculate this variable is, is pretty complex, um, but the concept and the math really boils down to R0 being a function of two terms. The first term is infectivity. This is basically the probability that a person will spread the disease to another person um, times the infection period. So the longer that a person is infected with this virus, the more potential the virus has to spread from one person to the next person. So these are, these are sort of these larger concepts, infectivity and infection period, where a lot of different variables affect the infectivity of the virus or the infection period. And so two of the main drivers of what enhance the infectivity of a virus is how contagious the virus is. So this is if a virus can be transmitted through aerosols, so droplets of water in the air, then that makes the virus very contagious. Whereas if it's spread through uh, bodily fluids, it's less contagious. Also, what goes into infectivity is the number of contacts an infected person has with susceptible people. Infection period is the length of time in which the virus can be transmitted from one person to another person. Theoretically, if humans get a virus, that virus could stay with the human for the rest of their lives. But two main factors can intervene to limit that time period. And one is that the human can gain immunity to the virus, making them, curing themselves, and then making them immune from any future infections. So when this happens, then the virus can no longer spread from that person. Also, you know, if the virus is deadly enough, it can cause mortality. And when mortality happens, when the person dies, the virus can no longer spread from that person. And so um, that's, that actually limits the, the, the infection period. Often people associate viruses with mortality and that association makes people think that mortality of the host is good for the virus. But in fact, the mortality of the host is really bad. So basically by sinking the ship, the virus goes down with the ship. So viruses such as Ebola uh, have these really high mortality rates and that's actually why they tend to have a much lower r naught than SARS-CoV-2 because basically they just burn through all of their population and no more people can, can spread it any further. So this is the concept of r naught, um, and r naught is an intrinsic property of the virus. However, um, there's another concept which is effective R. This is the reproductive potential after intervention. So we know that we can change our behaviors, we can change the way society functions in ways to influence whether or not the virus can spread. So ideally, while R0 might be 2.5 for SARS-CoV-2, we can hopefully change our behaviors in ways that would reduce that R below one so that the virus could uh, eventually go extinct from our populations. And so there's a number of measures that we'll walk through. First is we can affect how contagious somebody who's infected by the disease is by simply having them wear masks. This actually creates uh, an actual barrier so that viral particles get caught and can't be transmitted to other people. 
we can practice social distancing and quarantining, and this obviously influences the number of contacts uh, the infected patient has with other susceptible people. And lastly, with good healthcare, um, we can actually speed up recovery so that the patient um, doesn't have as much opportunity to spread the disease. So these are the measures that we can take against this disease right now. However, hopefully in the future, we have technology that we can apply, such as vaccines or medications. And so vaccines, we all think of that vaccines are very good for us uh, because they you know, make ourselves immune but they also have these larger population effects, such that when you apply a vaccine to a number of individuals, they become immune, they're no longer susceptible. So basically you're changing this variable, the number of contacts, and you're diminishing R and hopefully driving, helping drive the virus out of the population. By administering drugs, um, you actually have kind of dual effects at the population scale you're increasing the rate at which patients recover so they don't spread the disease anymore. And then you are also, um, if the drug is stopping the viral replication, then an individual who has the, the, the pathogen, who, who is infected, won't make as many vir viral particles, and so those individuals be, will be less contagious. So these, these measures that help preserve our own lives also have these population-wide effects that will help drive out the disease. So next, like I said, given everything that we know from these lectures um, and some other science, it is predicted that there's an increased likelihood of pandemics in the future. So this is due to a number of factors that I wanna walk through. First, we have increased exposure to non-human pathogens. Like Matt pointed out, Viruses that are new to humans are not really new. They're just, they're just coming from a, a, another uh, species. And so there's a number of ways that we have augmented our behaviors around the world to actually uh, heighten our interactions with other animals and then obviously their viruses as well, increasing the chance of that host shift. And so we have increased meat consumption this means that we have larger farms of chickens and pigs, and these are giant reservoirs for possible pathogens. We have increased encroachment on natural areas, um, and obviously as we move into these forests to deforest them, we are being exposed to a huge diversity of mammals, a huge diversity of animals that have viruses that potentially could jump into our population. And of course, if we have increased exotic animal trade, that's a very close direct interaction with an animal and a diversity of animals that could foster uh, emergence of a new virus. Another problem is urbanization. So as we grow, as human populations grow around the world, and since our earth is limited in resources, uh, we have to be very conservative. And so it's best for us to live in cities to preserve resources. However, urbanization also leads to the average person having more contacts with other people and so thinking about in terms of R0 in those calculations, that increases the potential for viruses to spread. Globalization is also a problem. So much global travel means that a local epidemic can turn into a pandemic relatively quickly, as we've seen with COVID-19. The fourth factor is climate change. We are augmenting the temperature of the earth in environments in a way that we're making ourselves more susceptible to diseases. 
For example, when we warm the earth, we create more habitats for mosquitoes that carry vectors like malaria, and by increasing their range, they can spread to new human populations that are not impacted by malaria. By increasing temperatures, we're increasing flooding, and there's many pathogens that are waterborne, such as cholera, which um, we will be exposing more and more people to. So while this all is pretty grim, we can take these factors and we can actually predict where in the world are these new emerging diseases likely to occur, and then hopefully begin to intervene. So now, next, I'd like to ask where will the next disease emerge? This is a map of the globe, obviously. Um, this is produced by EcoHealth Alliance. It was published in 2017 in Nature Communications. Uh, and it shows us where there are hotspots where we anticipate future pandemics to start from. So where disease emergence happens. You can see that um, where uh, this new SARS uh, virus came from is actually a hotspot. But you can see that also in North America, in Southern California, and in New York areas, those are also other hotspots. I should say that you know, these are just statistical predictions. We don't know exactly where a disease is going to emerge. Why these regions are hotspots is they factored in all of those things that I've talked about. These are regions where you have lots of people, you have people being exposed to biodiversity, and also you have people that are more sensitive to global climate change. So while this is sort of a warning sign, and, and certainly what we're going through right now is is horrible, um, and we, we don't want to go through that again. I think that you know, having these, these kinds of efforts to predict, and like Matt was talking about, to surveil populations of viruses, and as Emily has said, with sequencing efforts, we can bring all of that information together uh, to be able to predict where emergence is going to happen, and hopefully intervene, change behaviors, change um, uh, society in ways that uh, diminishes the chance of having a new pandemic. So thank you, Suresh, and thank you, guys. Uh, so thank you so much, Justin. Uh, so now we are going to turn over to the discussion section of the, of the panel, uh, where I'm going to throw out some questions, and uh, our speakers can just chime in and uh, give us their wisdom on these particular topics. So let me just start with, uh, you know, all of you pointed out that coronavirus is actually a very common virus, which often causes common colds. And I think it's about 30% of the common colds are caused by coronaviruses. So they're relatively harmless most of the time. So what is it that this virus, the SARS-CoV-2, particularly to the lungs, that makes it so much more dangerous? I think it's probably, again, I think we're still trying to figure all of this out. If we take uh, examples of other, you know, seasonal viruses and pandemic viruses, so for instance, the 1918 flu versus seasonal influenza, one big piece of this, uh, or one big piece of that one was um, the amount of inflammation that was being caused, and in particular, where in the lung it was replicating. So for seasonal influenza, it's usually in the upper lung. For the pandemic influenza, it was able to easily access the lower lung. I think the early reports on this um, coronavirus look similar, and I think there's also a greater amount of inflammation that is the result of infection in the lung with this virus rather than the seasonal coronaviruses. Again, we have much less information about 
the seasonal coronaviruses than we do about seasonal influenza virus. And, you know, we obviously have much less information about SARS-CoV-2. But I, I think in a lot of cases, what we see with these viruses that aren't adapted to the human population is, is that the inflammatory response is very, very, very strong. And as a result of that, we get things like fluid leakage, which results in, you know, things like pneumonia emerging in the lungs, much more likely than we do in these viruses that are maybe a little bit more well adapted to the host population. Yeah, that's very interesting, Matt. You pointed uh, to this uh, inflammatory response, and I just want to uh, have someone comment on the fact that at some point, the body, our immune system turns against these cells in trying to protect this immune response. It all hell breaks loose just at that point. So that aggravates the whole situation to the point where there's severe lung damage and, and breathing difficulties, right? So uh, does anyone else want to comment on, on that particular point? Yeah, I guess just following on what Matt says, what we're trying to understand about SARS-CoV-2 is based a lot on SARS-CoV-1, where like Matt said, it causes this aggravated inflammation and what's called a cytokine storm, where there's all these signals in the body being sent to recruit immune cells and what's an over-exuberant response that causes tissue damage. And my understanding is also that I guess SARS-CoV-1 is able to inhibit some antiviral responses, and it's predicted that SARS-CoV-2 could do that as well. So you're getting this inflammation, but it's not necessarily a productive immune response, but rather rather is damaging. And it's where that immune system comes in as being kind of this double-edged sword that is oftentimes described as something that can both help us and harm us. Yes, very good. So uh, we talked a little bit about the potential uh, uh, possibility of developing a vaccine or drugs. Um, so can we talk a little bit about uh, what is the appropriate vaccine target in this case? Uh, and uh, in what time frame is a vaccine likely? If someone could walk us through the steps of starting from a target, how long it takes to make the vaccine, test it, and get it validated and approved by the FDA, this would be very useful for the audience, I think. Yeah, so again, I, I think uh, one of the reasons I brought up the spike protein is, is that I think this is going to be one of the main targets for vaccination. Um, and I think in terms of the steps that need to happen, I think a big part of it is actually figuring out in people that have been infected already, what are their antibodies targeting, right? So we can really use the the diversity of immune responses that people mount in these, you know, several hundred thousand people that have been, uh, have cleared the infection. We can actually look to see where their antibodies are targeting and we can use that then as a lead to, to generate kind of good, uh, uh, targets for vaccination. Timing wise. I mean, you know, Tony Fauci said, a year to 18 months. And I think that's probably pretty reasonable. I mean, a big issue about vaccines is they need to be insanely safe, right? Mm -hmm. You can't vaccinate people. You can't put something into healthy people that even has any chance of being, you know, potentially risky. Um, and I think that that is a big issue with vaccination is just that there needs to be a lot of testing in a lot of people before we really determine that that vaccine is safe to, to, you know, distribute widely in areas that uh, where still the probability, at least 
as it currently stands, the probability of getting sick or, or certainly of dying of this infection are quite low. And so you don't want to do more damage with a vaccine than you do with the disease itself. Yes, that's a very good point. There has been uh, there have been arguments in the press as to if we have a vaccine candidate that's ready, why can't we skip all the steps in between and go directly to people? And this point that you've made about uh, sometimes some of these vaccines can actually make it worse for the individual uh, mm -hmm. if they're not tested properly. So we need to have mouse models and, uh, and uh, before we get to uh, the, the final uh, dissemination of the vaccine. Uh, now, Emily, both you and Matt talked a little bit about the various steps in the entry of the virus, the replication, and that, uh, how it packages itself back into uh, virus particles and then leaves the cell. And of course, each one of those steps is a potential for a drug target, that if you could interfere with that step, then potentially you have a target. And you also pointed out that there are many other viruses, including other coronaviruses, that although they might bind different receptors, go in by the same mechanism, they replicate in general by the same mechanism. So can one begin to look at drug targets where things have been developed for other related viruses and try to use those? And are those likely, again, in the same time frame, or is that more likely that uh, we could come up on a drug uh, in less time than a year, for example? Yeah, I guess I would comment in terms of what Suresh is saying about using drugs against related viruses. There's a, you know, Ebola is another RNA virus where there's a drug, it's called remdesivir, and that's basically going to interfere with replication of the virus. And my understanding is that Gilead is trying to test that, and there's a single patient that was treated and recovered, but of course, N equals one doesn't mean very much. And so, you know, we really have to do thorough testing um, just to make sure we're not going to cause more harm than, than benefit that we generate. Um, there's also been a lot of hype about um, chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug. It's also used for, um, I believe, rheumatoid arthritis, and that's still um, in sort of the early stages of determining with really carefully controlled studies, is that going to... Um, is that going to be a good treatment? Um, yeah, I can hand it over to Justin if there's other drugs you want to comment on. Yeah, so I, I don't know of any other, other drugs that are under development right now. Um, I do think that we have to consider not just if they have bad side effects, but how likely the virus is to uh, mutate around the drug. Uh, so if we give everybody a drug that um, a single mutation in the virus uh, can confer resistance to it, given the, the size of the population of viruses within a single patient uh, and its high mutation rate, it's not as high as some viruses, but it's a pretty high mutation rate. Um, we're going to develop resistance almost immediately and our drugs aren't going to be useful. So I do think that, you know, studying sort of not just whether or not it's effective today, but whether or not it'll be effective tomorrow is important. Uh, and then I think coming up with strategies like drug cocktails, where we have a couple different drugs that target a couple different steps in the replication process, um, that may be really helpful. Uh, to go back to the discussion of um, vaccines, uh, it, I do know that they're, they're beginning to test vaccines. So, you know, we are along the ways. Um, it will be a long ways, but, but I, I, am, I, I am pretty confident that, that something will, will break through here. We have a lot of attention, a lot of very bright scientists working on this. That's terrific. Uh, Justin, you brought up this idea that if you have a drug, the virus is continuously mutating at, at some natural rate. And so 
I want to just contrast a little bit. When DNA replicates, uh, uh, there is uh, the machinery that is involved in replication also has a proofreading function, so it corrects mistakes that are made. But the enzymes that replicate RNA don't have this proofreading function, so they end up making mutations that is uh, more uh, prevalent than in, in DNA genomes. So is there any evidence that uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, has a mutation rate that is extraordinarily high? Uh, uh, anyone comment on that particular point? It, it appears that its mutation rate is it's high, like, a, like an RNA virus typically is, um, but not as high as other RNA viruses. So it's not, it's not an outlier in the, in the world of viruses. Um, and it does appear that uh, while the, the machinery that replicates RNA is very error prone, that means that it causes lots of mutations, um, there is some proofreading capacity in this virus, although I, I don't know too much about the mechanism myself. Matt, do you have a comment? Yeah, so there, there's, a, there's an additional component to the polymerase in, in this family of viruses that's unlike any other uh, RNA virus where they do have proofreading capabilities. So part of that is that these viruses are, you know, two to three times bigger than most other RNA viruses. And without that proofreading capability, if they were making mistakes at the same, you know, rate as, you know, polio virus or HIV, they would presumably uh, run into this sort of error catastrophe where the virus would basically have too many mutations to survive. So what we see in coronaviruses is that the, because they're a little bit bigger, they actually have a lower um, error rate than um, most RNA viruses. And that's due to this added polymerase proofreading activity. It's still way, way, way more error prone than we see for our polymerases or, you know, a bacterial polymerase or something like that. So we do, you know, that the error rate is still quite high. Mm -hmm. So I gather from from what Emily said that this virus is evolving in in real time, meaning that uh, so have we Emily have we seen evidence of this from what you presented uh, of uh, uh, mutations that are happening in real time in the genomes of these viruses from different parts of the world? Yeah, so we're able to like like Matt and Justin said, and, you know, see that the mutation rate for this virus, while as in keeping with RNA viruses in general, is higher than DNA viruses. It doesn't seem like it's as high as, for example, influenza. And I think maybe kind of touching back on this topic about how this may connect with vaccine development, influenza, which is an incredibly sloppy virus, that in terms of replication errors. There's been efforts to try to make a vaccine against what's common among the different influenza strains. And so that's something I think also that going forward with making a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, we want to keep an eye to trying to um, uh, dedicate efforts toward making um, a vaccine against, I mean, first any vaccine, but then again, a vaccine against something that's common among the different strains of the virus. And in terms of the rate at which um, the places in which SARS-CoV-2 is mutating, um, I can hand that either the, to Matt or Justin. So I, I actually want to, before we get into that again, sort of connect something that you just said, Emily, and, and something that Matt said earlier. Matt suggested that uh, we might want to create a um, uh, vaccine that targets the spike proteins, but we also know that these spike proteins evolve the fastest and have the most variation between uh, different SARS strains or different coronavirus strains. 
Um, so Matt, is that, is that just because they're on the outside and so yep. they're just a really bright target for yep. the immune system? And that's presumably also why the spike protein is evolving so fast is, is that it's, it's, you know, it is the main epitope that the immunes or the, the sort of main surface antigen that the immune system can see. And so we see this with many other viruses that those surface proteins, because that's the thing that antibodies respond to, which is generally what we're talking about when we're talking about creating a vaccine response, um, that those proteins are being driven to evolve fast by that selection from the immune system. You know, we don't have many other targets on the outside of the virus that we can use uh, for, you know, kind of uh, stimulation of the antibody response at the very least. So. And yeah, and along those lines, um, yeah, my understanding for this universal influenza vaccine that there's this effort to try to target things that aren't changing as much. So I guess that must be some part of the virus protein that's just constrained because it cannot change without losing its basic function. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing as, as we see with HIV, where people that develop these what are called broadly neutralizing antibodies against HIV they're still targeting these rapidly evolving surface proteins, but they're targeting regions of those rapidly evolving surface proteins that most antibodies can't reach, but these ones for whatever reason can, and they are, um, they're very highly conserved. So presumably that, you know, that's the, the approach that we would use for flu and potentially also here for, for coronavirus. So Matt, I, I, I have a follow-up question too. I think you, you're kind of presenting an, an evolutionary dilemma where uh, our immune systems are driving the evolution of these host recognition proteins. Um, and then we know genetic variation in those host recognition proteins um, is what helps uh, pathogens jump from one species to the other species. So, you know, is that, do you think that there's some kind of interesting dilemma or feedback between these things that that the bats immune systems essentially are driving the evolution that leads to the emergence of the pathogen yeah it's an interesting question i mean i think that that what's driving evolution of the recognition aspect of the spike protein so in many of these cases the recognition uh parts of the protein aren't necessarily the thing so the the part of spike that is recognizing ace2 isn't necessarily the thing that the antibodies are recognizing, right? And so um, I think it's actually probably separate surfaces. I don't know enough about what the antibody response is to, to, um, uh, to coronaviruses to know that in that particular case. But in many of these other cases, you know, you have this sort of uh, uh, surface protein of a virus that is targeting some receptor here and antibodies are actually sticking, you know, to other parts, not necessarily at that direct interface. Okay. So while we're on the topic, because I think, yeah, Justin, Matt, and I all really like this topic of the, the interaction between the surface protein of the virus and the host receptor. Uh, Matt, you had mentioned the bat ACE2 receptor that's um, used by coronavirus in bats. Given that it's so much harder to do research with bats and genetic manipulation, et cetera, it's possible there's other receptors and I'm curious what's known about what there may be other receptors in bats, which may tell us about what other receptors may be in humans. 
Yeah, so to my knowledge, we don't know of any other receptors. For, for a given coronavirus, we don't know of any other receptors in other species. So it always seems to be with these, um, you know, things like SARS-1 and SARS-2, it seems to be ACE2 um, and all of the related bat viruses. There are, you know, other coronaviruses that use other surface receptors, right? And so you could imagine that there would be um, there would be the possibility of sort of that particular jump, um, and of course that's you know stuff that Justin pays a lot of attention to, right? Is how you utilize a new receptor. Um, but I think in the case of this, what what is happening is not these big jumps in terms of what receptor is being used, but actually sort of small fine tuning of when a given bat species has, you know, a couple amino acid changes on its surface, the spike protein just basically needs to adapt to that in order to replicate in the, the new species of bat. And the same holds, of course, for, for humans. But again, it, I think this point, and there, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago, that really was sampling a lot of these um, uh, coronaviruses from bats, and many of them could actually utilize human ACE2. So I think that jump in many respects has already been made. And so it's going to be a lot of these other things like, you know, modulation of the immune response and things like that that are, are probably going to be responsible for that kind of fine tuning. Mm. So as this uh, disease spreads around the world, there are, we want to separate fact from uh, fiction. Um, and there are people in some parts of the world who believe that they're not as susceptible to this virus. Um, either because uh, they have intrinsic uh, immunity or because uh, the climate there is warmer or whatever. Uh, uh, so I want to just talk a little bit about this. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, expectations for natural human variants that might be resistant uh, to this particular virus. Uh, what do we know about this from studies with other viruses and how can one relate that to SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, maybe I'll start and then Justin and Matt can chime in in more detail. Um, you know, the lesson from HIV was that there were natural variants in the human population that had a change in the receptor. In that case, it was this receptor called CCR5 used by HIV to enter the cell. And, and people that had two mutant copies of that receptor were quite resistant. I think there was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, like sex workers in Africa that kept getting exposed and weren't, weren't infected. And so the question then is, yeah, what is the um, natural human variation for this ACE2 receptor, among other factors that are going to regulate infection by coronavirus? And, um, you know, I think the short answer is that the jury is still out, but maybe I'll, I'll leave it to Matt and Justin to expand on how much we know at this point. Yeah, so I, I actually think this is a really cool topic that we understand almost nothing about in terms of infectious diseases. So... You know, Emily brought up this case of HIV. There's a couple other cases where we can map human genetic variants to differences in disease susceptibility, but it's really, really rare. Um, very different than the way that, for instance, we can say someone has a high risk of breast cancer susceptibility or, you know, Alzheimer's disease or things like that. And so, um, you know, I think we don't know, as Emily mentioned, and, you know, I also mentioned all of these points where the virus is interacting with the host could be points where variation in human proteins could really have an effect. I think it's, it's one of the potential um, 
you know, things that may, you know, good things that may come out of this is that we could really start to map the genotypes of the virus to the genotypes of the person to the actual outcome of the the infection and really, you know, maybe start to get into some of that level of detail. But I think so far, you know, I think actually ACE2 is not particularly polymorphic in the human population, but a lot of the other proteins that um, these viruses interact with are quite polymorphic in the human population. And some of those could be, you know, actually determining uh, susceptibility to disease, excuse me, and some of them, you know, could just be random, right? Yeah, and I guess along those lines, um, you know, a related phenomenon from studying HIV infection was that there are these things called restriction factors, and this is what Matt was referring to, different steps along the way that viruses can be blocked. And a particular restriction factor that's it's, it's called a ubiquitin ligase, the name was TRIM5, that um, it was present, is, is able to basically degrade parts of HIV in certain primate species that humans lack or, or have a different version of. And so it can be things that not just like the receptor that changes, but also whether or not there's something that will recognize the virus as something that's non-self, something that's foreign, that needs to be degraded. Um, and that'll also be interesting to see how that varies in the human population. Uh, I think it was uh, Matt to talk about uh, uh, normal immunity and uh, uh, vaccines and so on. So at, at some point, uh, then depending on the particular virus and the vaccine, uh, you get this thing called herd immunity, where even those who are not immunized uh, have uh, the protection because the virus cannot find so many uh, hosts to transmit the disease to. So is that likely? So I often wonder in very, very densely populated regions around the world, uh, you know, uh, India, Africa being examples, uh, where social distancing is just physically uh, impractical for a variety of reasons, whether there will be a combination of herd immunity and social distancing that will uh, end up creating a, a final balance. Uh, so at what point can one expect herd immunity? Can we talk a little bit more about that? I can follow up based on uh, that, that concept of r not. Um, so that's that that concept of R naught comes from this epidemiological model called an SIR model, and those models do predict herd immunity. Um, I I think that we will rely on herd immunity when we have a vaccine, but hopefully not before that. So for herd immunity to work, um, you have to have a large fraction of your population being immune to the pathogen, and so. Basically, that, that just means that there's just all these people around that it can't spread to, and so it just has a harder time spreading. And then it can it, it's R not or its R will drop below one, and then it'll go it'll leave the population. Um, but that the fraction of people that have to be immune for it to not spread is really high, and that would mean that if we had that effect happening before we had a vaccine it would mean that this pandemic has gotten completely out of control. That right. yeah. Something like you know, 30 to 60% of the population of the world has experienced it um, and are now immune, but because of the high mortality rate of this virus, so not as high as Ebola, but higher than influenza, um, that would mean millions and millions of people uh, dying. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think in the end, uh, I think we are going to have to um, 
distance ourselves, isolate ourselves, um, and then ride out the clock so that eventually when we have a vaccine, we can begin to become immune to this at, at a really large scale, um, and then herd immunity will suppress, um, suppress uh, uh, COVID-19. I do want to just chime in on this topic of immunity in terms of kind of a cautionary tale. I think my understanding with efforts to develop a vaccine against one strain of dengue fever actually led people to be more susceptible to other strains. And I, I think there was maybe some preliminary um, results that suggested the SARS-CoV may have a similar effect. So just again, to just, you know, I think there's an amazing amount of hope for a vaccine at the same time. It really does require that we do careful testing um, and make sure that we're not creating more problems than we're solving. Yes, uh, so, you know, uh, this brings me to this, uh, we're, there's an active debate going on about how long uh, we should practice social distancing and uh, the government has considered uh, in some circles whether we should get back to work by Easter. And of course, now that has been extended. So uh, you want to, uh, Justin, you talk beautifully about the factors that go into, uh, you know, why social distancing works in terms of the r not and what it does. Uh, so can you... Uh, uh, say how long you think uh, the social distancing is necessary, at least uh, with the USA in context. Yeah, so I, I, I guess I want to respond just with the caveat that uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist and I teach about epidemiology, but I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, what do I tell my, my uh, family and friends that are freaking out? I think that's sort of the mm -hmm. um, best way to go about answering this. I tell them to take each day at a time um, that we have to continue social distancing. I tell them that hopefully we do have a break around June. Um, there's some ideas that maybe in the summertime this thing won't spread as much. Um, but also by June, what that does is it gives us an opportunity to all socially distance uh, for the, for especially in the United States, for within each of the individual states to hit their peak and then to be uh, dropping down in the number of um, uh, uh, patients with disease, um, and then uh, for us to sort of mellow out. But at, at June, what does that mean? Does that mean that we all immediately go back to work and immediately go back to the bars and immediately you know, go back to normal life? That's not what we should do. Um, we will have to then assess at June, sort of, okay, we had this very strict measure that helped us um, stop the exponential spread of this virus, but now how do we go forward so that we don't reignite that exponential spread again? Um, and so I think it's going to have to take careful consideration, but it's going to be a while until life gets back to normal. Um, I know that that's terrible news, and I think to cope with it, just live each day and be as, as, uh, as um, careful as you can at preventing catching this disease and spreading this disease. So this, uh, 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 Justin, you brought up an interesting point that was implicit in your statements, and that is that, you know, for this to work, the entire world has to practice social distancing so that we stop the virus cold, right? But if you don't, and you do this in different parts of the world with different uh, uh, start dates and stop dates and so on, then they can be this, uh, we're on the risk of a ricochet effect. So you 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 think you've flattened the curve in one area and then the neighboring uh, country or state or whatever uh, is still 
uh, transmitting the virus, and then you can get it back again. So, and there have been cases even in China where after they saw the cases drop, now there are cases coming in from outside. So how does one manage this uh, at a global level? So again, I, I, I'll give the same caveat that Justin did, which is, you know, I, I study, you know, evolution of hosts and viruses. So I am not an epidemiologist, but in some of the reading I've done, you know, I think there's a couple of things to talk about here. One, you know, we do see, in fact, even in, um, there was a nice National Geographic article just recently about the, this ricochet effect that you were talking about in, during the 1918 uh, pandemic in different U.S. cities. And one, you know, really take-home message from that is even when there was a ricochet or this sort of bounce back, the, the cities that were doing the strongest social distancing overall had the lowest mortality rate. And so, you know, the, the idea is, is that by kind of flattening this curve, we can allow things to catch up, right? We can allow the health system to catch up. We can allow, I mean, one big thing about how we can move forward from this, you know, lockdown of everybody is if we actually knew who was infected, right? If we had effective testing or effective serology, like Emily was talking about, then we could actually much faster respond to these sort of localized potential bounce back effects from reintroduction or something like that. So I think a lot of it is just allowing the system, allowing the science, allowing society to really catch up to being able to deploy the public health uh, measures that make sense in terms of containing the disease, but are also less disruptive to society and the economy and everybody's sort of mental, <laughs> mental health. So I want to follow on that exactly what Matt was saying. I agree that, you know, we, we really need better testing. Um, and I also want to follow on, um, I guess I, I just learned about a study from also from the 1980 influenza pandemic where that addresses this issue. I think that people have proposed um, that we're either choosing to save lives or save the economy. And they did this sort of, you know, this study comparing which cities did the earlier, stronger, more intense social distancing that saved lives those were also the cities that did better economically. Mm -hmm. So by saving lives, you're actually helping the economy. And I think that's such an important message to, to drive home and make sure that people know. Yeah, very good point. So Emily, you began your uh, presentation by talking about the, the open science and how, uh, uh, you know, all the governments in the world now are looking to scientists, technologists, and medical professionals to find the fastest, cheapest, and the scalable testing tools, as well as cures for this particular disease, right? So let's talk a bit about uh, the, the concept of open science and the creation of platforms for sharing results uh, of studies in real time, rather than waiting for the slow process of peer-reviewed publications and getting manuscripts out and so on. This is a, a crisis of unprecedented uh, proportions and we just need, the whole world needs to get together to solve this problem as fast as possible. So let's throw this out for discussion. Yeah. Actually, we wonderful. start with you, Emily. Yeah, yeah wonderful talk. It just, it's, it's so inspiring to just, just over the last month or two, so to learn about um, yeah, this, this, these resources where the entire genome is inf information is available, 
that that um, GSAID, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, that website, that within an hour the information gets ported to NextStrain. All of that information is freely available. People can download it, they can analyze it, they can um, you know, do their particular um, form of assessment. And that is one form of this open sharing. And then also there's this open sharing that's really been transforming the publication world. And one aspect of that is preprint servers. And there's a preprint server called BioArchive. There's one called MedArchive. So when people submit their paper to a journal, they can post that information there as well. And so anybody can look at it, they can comment on it, and the information gets out much more rapidly than it would if we were waiting. And we still, of course, want to wait for peer review. That's, I, I think everybody has different opinions. I still think that's absolutely critical. We need to have experts assess the data and so that we only have um, really well, uh, uh, you know, well scrutinized results that are being published. Um, but yeah, if you look at BioArchive and MedArchive, I think there's now almost a thousand papers between the two that are related to coronavirus just from the last few months. And several journals are also providing coronavirus information and coverage um, freely available. So I think that's that's really going to change science. The more people can share information, the more progress we're going to make. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll just add one thing to that, which is just all of these social networking tools that have, you know, been developed in the last, I don't know, 10 years, right, of Twitter and Slack and Zoom, right, and, and the ability to actually uh, – have these conversations in real time is has really been transformative. I mean, even within the San Diego community, right? There's this huge group of people that have set up all these resources that are just firing messages back and forth to each other saying, Hey, I need this thing. Or do you have, and I, you know, do you have access to this piece of, you know, equipment or something like that? Right. And, and that has really been, I mean, it's been kind of overwhelming to be part of, but it's also <laughs> been really, I mean, it's just everything is moving so much faster. Right. So this is uh, truly a silver lining to this otherwise dark cloud that's blooming over us. Justin, do you have any comments about this open science? Yeah, I mean, it, so of course, I'm, I'm also inspired by all of this. Um, I would have to say that I'm about to teach a course on evolution of infectious disease, and COVID-19 will be a big part of the course because that's what students are most interested in right now. And it can... It can only be such a big part of the course because of these resources, these databases, and where people are doing real-time analyses on, you know, the most recent up-to-date data, um, and because of the open source uh, publications, or the, um, sorry, the, um, the preprint publications, uh, where, you know, we can, we can look at, you know, what is the most modern science, and I can present it in my, in my class. Um, and so then the dissemination is not just among scientists, but it is to students and to the public really quickly. Um, and so as a whole, we're much more informed. Uh, so I do, I find it. Yeah, and, and I should just uh, add that uh, this goes way beyond just the science because it, with everyone sitting at home, all kinds of uh, you know, thousands of jobs uh, and professions need to get their work done. So people are just being exceptionally creative about uh, finding ways to communicate, reach out to, uh, to help each other for mental uh, help and so on, social connections. And I know I personally have called more people in the last 
<laughs> two weeks than I've done in the past two years. So, uh, you know, at least the world's coming together. So let me just before we finish, though, uh, uh, just talk about some of the lessons that uh, each of you has learned from this particular pandemic that will prepare us for the next one that hopefully is some distance away. But you never know what's around the corner. Yeah, I guess I would just, you know, kind of um, reiterating what we said before about open science, open sharing, that being able to track where that um, virus has spread, where it came from, where it's going, how it's changing, like that's, that has just been so inspiring. And I think it really will be crucial to the next time this happens because it's going to continue to happen. This is, it's like what Matt had in his presentation about that the, the red queen, it's just we're continually running, keeping up with the pathogens and they're trying to keep up with us. And I guess I would also say, I would also say that, you know, I really hope that our government takes this seriously, that, you know, there was a, there was a pandemic response team that had been established and that was um, uh, disbanded and that we need those kinds of resources and support in order to better prepare going forward. Because as soon as we have effective testing, we can so much more rapidly contain, track, and learn how to treat these kinds of diseases. Similar, I guess, to what Emily was saying, you know, I think one thing we've learned from this is, is that, you know, we are a hundred years advanced from where we were with, you know, the 1918 flu, and yet we're still being brought to our knees by this virus. And I think one thing is, is that, you know, Public health is really, really, really critical for these sorts of, uh, you know, sort of rapid deployment of intelligently designed, well-executed public health is really critical to this. I mean, it's, you know, we can say we're going to develop a vaccine in in 12 to 18 months, or we're going to develop drugs in that amount of time. But really, these ideas of, you know, social distancing, containing and testing and all of that is really the key to this rapid emergence of these viruses because, you know, Emily's, uh, you know, picture of the the virus going in and a hundred going out is similar to, you know, Justin's picture of a virus going into one person and getting three out. And, you know, that's what gives us this exponential curve. And no matter how smart science is, you know, the way a lot of times to contain viral infections seems to be uh, these sorts of measures. And, that has been very effective in some cases that fortunately we haven't heard became pandemics. So, you know, the 2009 swine flu, there's been some cases of avian influenza that people were really worried about. Um, even SARS-1, you know, I think that, that mm-hmm. these measures were effective at containing those viruses, even with all those flaws. And so I think one thing to really learn is what, what can we do to ensure that those are always there even as the science is trying to catch up. Justin? Justin, I mean, what I've, what I've learned personally is, you know, people need to take these things seriously. We, we knew that this was a possibility for a very long time. I start the first lecture of my evolution of disease course by pointing out that the same slide or a similar slide that I showed you during my presentation, that the world is changing in a way that these are much more likely to happen again and again and again. And so we can't brush them off when we do see that there's a new disease spreading somewhere in the globe, even if we think that it's very far away from us. And so we have to take it seriously. And I think the other thing that we could really gain a lot from 
is better surveillance of diseases in bat populations, in other, you know, other mammal populations, um, knowing, knowing what's out there, um, and maybe even what has the potential to, to move into humans. And I think there's also just a lot of fundamental knowledge that we need to learn as well. Um, we don't know what precisely the genetic mutations are that might have aided this virus's emergence into humans. Um, and so it'd be nice to actually know more about the basic biology and the, the evolution so we would be able to predict what kinds of genetic variants might be more problematic. I mean, to be honest, in our lab, um, we have seen evolution that's very similar to this happening. It's in a very different virus, but there's a lot of common themes. Now, of course, that might just be the human brain making these connections, but there might actually be something uh, there. And so the strain that emerged in uh, in humans, this, this SARS-CoV-2, uh, it has deletions in a key protein that we have shown uh, the same, the analogous protein in our virus, when there are these deletions in this region, it tends to drive host range changes. And so if we started putting together more and more information from more and more viruses and having controlled experiments and looking at natural variation, perhaps we could better predict what the bad um, potential diseases are and intervene at an earlier step before they emerge into our population. Of course, I agree what Matt is saying that you know once they emerge, you have fast-acting containment strategies. That's really critical. Um, and of course, in the end, having a way to create um, uh, vaccines quickly is another pre preventive measure or, or way of dealing with these things. But I also think we can we can even stop it at an, at an earlier step. Well, I must thank all of you for a truly fascinating uh, uh, conversation. Uh, we started off just uh, you know, eager to disseminate some of our teaching skills and information for, uh, for our students and faculty and anyone who wants to listen. But I've learned a great deal from this conversation myself. There are lots of fascinating questions in biology that remain to be answered. And... Uh, if the audience loves this uh, and wants us to talk about other related things, please let us know through the feedback and we'd be happy to do more of this. So thank you all for uh, being a part of this conversation and uh, stay safe, all of you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.